with you all in the words of Malachi the prophet as we're working our way through his book. We remember the setting of Malachi, that this was a time of spiritual decline in Israel, a time of apathy, a time of disinterest in the things of God. And as we've seen, this kind of disinterest in the things of God is having, uh, creating a host of societal problems for God's people. As they've departed from the good law that God gave them at Mount Sinai, which was the foundation of their nation, unique in the whole history of the world, what's happened? Well, they've suffered. They've brought suffering upon themselves as they've decided to go their own way and not be interested in the things of God. And so we've seen how Malachi has come with a message in the form of his dispute, where God will make a statement or ask a question and the people will respond with a question, well, how have we done that? Or, or what do you mean? Uh, and then God is able to bring uh, a response, a prophetic indictment, a charge for his people. Uh, we're on the fifth of these disputes today. For those of you who like to know where we're going in terms of the bigger picture, I know who some of you are. I can relate to you. Um, there's one more dispute left, sort of the crux of the book, uh, really was, is what we'll take up next week. The third Sunday in October we'll have for, uh, is the Disciple Now weekend, and so our Disciple Now speaker will be preaching, and then we'll conclude the book of Malachi um, and his prophecy in chapter 4 at the end of this month. So that's kind of where we're at. We're, we're winding down in terms, of, and in terms of winding down towards the end of the book, but we're winding up in terms of this dispute between God and his people, in terms of the the sort of intensity of it and their charges and God's responses to them. Um, Malachi has been called the prophet of God's covenant love because of the way that God has rooted his dispute with his people in terms of his love. Again, it's as it's, it's, if he's saying, I wouldn't be arguing with you if I didn't care. One of the things that, that's one of the things I really appreciate about this book is that it's rooted in God's love, it's rooted in God's everlasting covenant, and yet it's a very practical book that addresses the human heart and addresses the issues of our day. In some ways, that almost seems a bit too practical. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about divorce. Today, we're talking about tithing. You know, you can stay tuned and see what controversial subject it comes up next uh, as we go along. I don't know. Someone was asking me, why did you pick this book? <laughs> um, it, it is a good book. I really appreciate what Malachi is saying because he's getting to the heart of it as God is speaking with his people. So we're on page 676 if you're using a pew Bible, Malachi 3 starting in verse 6. Of course, there's a sermon outline uh, in the bulletin as well. Here's the word of the Lord to us. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from de devouring your crops, 
and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Pray with me. Father, again, as we look to your word, we need your encouragement, we need your help, we need understanding. And so we ask that you would meet with us during these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 2005, the uh, news headlines were focusing upon, if you remember this, for, uh, upon the, uh, the so-called G8 summit, where the, the eight sort of most powerful nations in the world had gathered. This, this time the meetings were in Scotland, and they were, uh, t- you know, meeting to talk about problems for, uh, for the global problems, problems for the world, climate change, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, and particularly the plight of Africa. And so what came out of these um, meetings was that these eight nations had agreed to provide 55, up to $55 billion for debt relief uh, for many of the nations of the poorest of the poor, most of those being in Africa. It was a step in the right direction, right? A move that was hailed by rock stars, Bono and others, politicians, economists were all saying, this is going to really make a difference. It would mean, for instance, that a country like Tanzania, that was spending 12 to 13 percent of its income just to pay off its debts, would instead be able to use that money for infrastructure and to use that for the benefit of its people. Good news for the people of Africa, right? But perhaps more could be done. Studies about giving in America suggest that if American churchgoers, Americans who go to church, gave 10% of their income, that would equal about $165 billion in it above what current levels of giving are. So the church would be in a position to do three times as much as the most powerful eight nations in the world. Studies by the United Nations suggest that an additional 70 to 80 billion dollars would be enough to provide access to essential services like basic health care and education for all of the poor of the earth. If American Christians did no more than tithe, there would be the private dollars available to foot the entire bill and still have about half again as much to do evangelism and other kinds of kingdom work around the globe. Now, of course, this is somewhat unrealistic, and it really wouldn't solve all of the world's problems, but it gives us a sense of the potential and the place of privilege that American Christians enjoy. Other studies estimate that half of the world's Christian wealth is in the United States, but only 12% of the world's Christians. Now, of course, I don't say all this to make us feel guilty, And most of us probably don't feel wealthy. We struggle to make ends meet. We live in an expensive place. But sometimes I think it's helpful for me and for us to recognize how blessed we are, how immensely blessed we are, and how there may be unprecedented opportunities in our generation and in our country and from our country when we consider how to advance the kingdom of God in the world today. As we begin this now, our fifth dispute, God begins with a statement of love and faithfulness, grounding it as he begins to talk to his people about the problem of tithing and not giving 
to him. So we'll start there in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. This is an interesting uh, statement, isn't it? It's, not, it's sort of like a backhanded statement of assurance, right? Because I don't change, you all haven't been destroyed. Because I'm merciful and faithful and because I keep my promises, you all are not consumed and destroyed. You're still around. Isn't that funny how it's sort of this backhanded way of saying, I'm keeping my promises and because I'm keeping my promises, I haven't poured out my wrath on you. Because I'm keeping my promises, I haven't treated you as your sins deserved. Because I've made promises, and he roots, he calls them what here? Children of Jacob. Going back 1,500 years to the patriarchs, because I keep my promises, you all are still around. God's consistent character, right, is the assurance here. That God isn't capricious, he's not fickle, he's not forgetful, he's not neglectful. His unchangeableness if we're going to use this sort of Westminster Confession theological word for it, his immutability is the kind of foundation that assures his people that he's not going anywhere. And the point of verse 7 is that the sinfulness of God's people, their well-established patterns and tendencies to turn away from him, that they've proven time and time again in, his, in their history, that even their unbelief and rebellion doesn't overcome his plan for them, right? That he's not going to destroy them, that he has a plan for them to refine them, to purify them, as we saw last week, as a refiner burns the impurities out. God has a plan to save many through the work of his Son. So it's important to see what, what's going on here, right? God again is rooting, his, his, his rooting himself in his promises, and his actions towards them, and his love for his people. But it's important to see as the dispute goes on that the actions of God's people in response to him are not without consequence. He's not a punching bag who just likes to take punishment, right? There is relational damage that's being done as they ignore him, and as they treat the worship of him with contempt, as they break faith with him, and the other things that we've seen. So God is calling his people to repentance in verse, there at the end of verse um, 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. It's a beautiful picture here of God extending himself towards his people, isn't it? To return in Hebrew means, uh, can have a literal physical meaning, to turn around, to change direction, or it also has a spiritual meaning as as, uh, is used here, to turn around the direction of one's life, to turn back or return to. In relation to God, this is used in the Old Testament in, in different ways, to turn away from or to turn towards. To turn away from, of course, is to reject God. To turn towards him means to repent and to ask him to return to you and to show favor and blessing. So there's a symmetry going on here. Return to me and I will return to you. 
We're in a relationship here, God is saying. It's a two-way street. The door is always open for you to come back to me, God says again to his people. And it's a picture of a welcoming God, isn't it? Not a God with his arms crossed and a stern look on his face, even in the context of judgment as we saw last week. There is an encouragement to us that repentance is never out of reach in this life. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. God does not turn away any who come to him in humility and repentance, from the thief on the cross to so many others. God's grace is overwhelming in that way. Right? It's never too late to call upon him in this life and to begin to do the right thing and to turn to God. And God says, I will return to you. Return to me, I will return to you. For the people of Malachi's day, their response to this invitation is our, but you say, you know, setting up the dispute here. How are we to return? What does it look like for us to return to you? And so, of course, we've seen throughout the course of the book a long list of things which God's people should repent of in Malachi. The specific charge this morning is related to their giving. In God's eyes, they're robbing him. Will a man rob God? Of course, this is a rhetorical question that has a a negative answer. Of course not. God can't be plundered. No one can uh, take anything, steal from him. Yet you rob me, God says. And the language here goes from man and God, again, to what? You and me. It's about you and me. It's about how we're doing. It's about our relationship, God is saying, to his people. And how what you're doing and not doing is affecting our relationship. So, but again, the people ask the question. But you ask, how do we rob you? God's response is that they have been robbing him in tithes and offerings. And that this action has placed them, the whole nation, under a curse. We need to do a little explaining here. The Old Testament has a lot to say about offering and tithing. It's actually a bit complicated for us to understand the whole system of the festivals and the offerings and the tithes and the sacrificial system and and all of that. Some of the problem is, of course, that we're too far removed from the context to know exactly how everything fit together. But these are two categories that God is describing that fall under the same heading in relation to giving to God for the people of Israel in Old Testament times. First, there's this category of offerings. And the Old Testament describes offerings that were given for special purposes, offerings that were, and some offerings that were regular or perpetual. There were special offerings collected for the building of the tabernacle and for the building of the temple. Uh, there were other special events where there were sort of one-time kind of collections that were taken up to make things, usually to make things for worship, to make things for the, the house of God or the people of God. There were regular offerings also that were given to support the work of the temple and the priests, the maintenance of it, the repairs of it, the ongoing efforts of the priesthood. And the priests and the Levites actually were supported by both offerings and by tithes from God's people. And there's an interesting account in Nehemiah 13.10, which happened during the same time period. And we learn from that passage that some of the temple musicians, some of the Levites, whose job it was to, to care for the temple and the music of it, had to leave their ministry at the temple and return home to their, work, to their homes to work on their farms and gardens to provide for their families because there wasn't enough support coming in through the regular support system of giving at the temple. 
Nehemiah and Malachi are probably within a few decades of each other, if not contemporaries. So this, again, sets us in the historical setting of what God's people are doing and how that's affecting the worship of him. God had arranged, of course, in the earlier centuries that the tribe of Levi would not have a a territorial, a regular land inheritance as the other tribes had. But the Levites, would, the Levites would have some of their own villages and towns scattered throughout the whole territory of Israel, but they would basically be provided for from the offerings and the tithes of the other tribes. The principle was that God had established it this way, that those who serve in the temple for the worship of God, for the good of the nation, wouldn't have regular farms and herds. They would be given what they needed in terms of their service from the offerings and the tithes of the people. So that's a description of offerings. Tithes, of course, are, um, were given for a number of uses as well as to support the priesthood. The idea of the tithe is the tenth part uh, in Hebrew and in English. One portion out of ten, which was commanded to be given uh, to God in various forms. It was given in terms of the produce of the land, crops, wine, grain, and in terms of the produce of the herds. The idea of one part in ten goes all the way back to the ancient Near East and is shown in other religions of the day. Abraham offered a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. If you remember Melchizedek, the exalted, shadowy figure, the king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, that Abraham met in Genesis 14. And Abraham, the lesser, offered to Melchizedek, this king, a tenth of all that he had. So this idea of giving a tenth to a master, a lord, a ruler, was a sort of a common one in that day. And in the Old Testament, as God describes it for us, we see that the tithe was used for a number of things. It was given to support the Levites and, pre- Levites and priests, as I mentioned, in the work of the temple. We also see in Deuteronomy 14 that part of the tithe was given to make a big Thanksgiving festival for the people. And it's really a fascinating passage. You should look it up, Deuteronomy 14. The idea is that one week during the year, the people of Israel would take 10% of their provisions for the whole year, and they would use it on a party. Now think about that for a second. That's probably even more than what you spend on Christmas. Think about 10% of your yearly income and blowing it in the course of a week for the whole nation to party like that. I don't know what you know, these carnival and these other things are like in other countries, but that's a big party, right? 10% of your yearly provisions were enjoyed in one week. And God had built this into his law and ha- so that his people would have to trust that the remaining 90% would be enough to see them through until the next harvest and all of that, right? I think it tells us something really interesting about what it looks like for people to trust God. And I think it tells us something interesting about what it looks like for God to want his people to enjoy his blessings in community. God isn't a killjoy. God is commanding a huge festival for his people to richly and vigorously enjoy his good gifts. 10% of what they had to live on, they spent in a week. Interesting, isn't it? 
God ends this section by saying they're already under his judgment and his curse because of this robbery, because they're withholding what they were obligated and obliged to give him. So what's the solution? Verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. First notice that the whole nation is under a curse because they're not bringing in the whole tithe. We should notice the use of the word there, that something wholehearted is not happening. Second, God says, test me in this. Try me. See what I will do. Now, often in the Bible, that's a bad thing. Don't put God to the test. Usually that's a bad thing. Uh, Usually there's some kind of... uh, some, often there's some kind of punishment that comes. But sometimes we see, as in this case, that God puts, offers such as a challenge, as an opportunity for his people to watch him do something remarkable. We can think of Moses, we can think of Gideon, lots of examples of people who were invited to test God, to get, for him to give them a sign to, to, that he would do the things that only he could do on their behalf. The specific blessing offered here is what? It's this interesting description of the kindness of God who will prevent the locusts and other kind of pests from devouring their crops, who will keep the vines from dropping their fruit until it can be harvested. The idea is that the the vine won't cast away its fruit. The vine will keep its fruit until it can be harvested. God describes his response to such a display of the faithfulness of his people as a chance for him to throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much much that they have no room for it. The same expression about the floodgates of heaven is captured in the story of Noah in Genesis 7-11. And watch God open the floodgates of heaven to flood the earth. Picture that kind of blessing being poured out passage concludes with this image of the, that the nations will see, this amazing outpouring and call the land of God's people blessed. The testing God in this way can provide a way in which the whole world will see that he is a great king over all the earth as he says he is. And we've heard already in Malachi chapter 1 that the Lord Almighty says, I'm a great king and all the nations need to see that. What should we understand from our, test, from our text today as we think about what it means for us? First, we have to acknowledge that the New Testament does not describe a 10% tithing rule for Christians, and that the church has never understood that this Old Testament directive applies directly today in exactly the same way. Most of us are far removed from an agrarian lifestyle. We don't live within the setting of a nation of God's people as in the time of Malachi's day in Israel. Now, some Christians do continue to use a 10% tithe as a guideline for their giving, and that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that, but we need to understand it's not what's commanded again in the New Testament. The bigger issue, of course, is for us to consider the principle. How are we to understand this point of this passage 
And then how are we to ask God to help us apply it into our, into our everyday situations today? Well, in the same way that every heretic has his verse, every tele-evangelist knows this passage. And every tele-evangelist exploits this passage by promising people that if they give to their ministry, that they'll receive some kind of windfall of material blessing and prosperity. And the health and wealth gospel is teaching, it's not a gospel at all, they call it that, but it's not. The health and wealth teaching is a big problem over all of the world. And sadly, it's a huge problem in Africa, among the poor, who are misled by their pastors. And it's a fundamental misapplication, a misunderstanding of what Scripture is teaching us. But how does the New Testament address the issue of giving and possessions? Well, of course, Jesus said many things about our hearts and our treasure. And he challenged people to trust him with the details of life and not be anxious about what they had or didn't have. He spoke to the heart. He showed us that the widow's two pennies are worth more than the extravagant gift of the wealthy. He criticized the Pharisees for their straight legalistic, meticulous application of the 10% tithe without generosity and compassion and kindness. As I reflect on the passage in Malachi, I want to direct us for a few minutes to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's on page 820. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, in the context of Paul's second letter here to the Corinthians... He is bringing, Paul is bringing an offering from many churches in Macedonia that he had collected upon his journey to Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering because of a famine. Many churches have helped, and Paul is encouraging the church members at Corinth to also help to provide for these fellow believers who are in a very difficult situation. It starts in, in chapter 8 and in all of chapter 9. It's you know, a, a, um, a key passage for us for, on this topic. But I just want to read just a few verses of it in verse 6 of chapter 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered Abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. I love how Paul takes up this agricultural metaphor, right, of reaping and sowing. It's clearly grounded in this kind of Old Testament passage, clearly grounded in their whole system of giving. And he takes it up a notch because he says that in generously and in generosity and giving, there is something bigger at stake than a, than a physical blessing. Did you hear it in verse 10? He will supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Sowing and reaping produces a harvest of righteousness, that sanctification is in view. That how we think about giving to God is part of our way of being made more and more like Christ. 
The next verse says you'll be made rich in every way. More than a physical blessing is in view. There's a spiritual blessing in store for those who contribute to the needs of God's people. More than just riches in money, there are manifold, comprehensive riches that God is talking about here. What does that look like for us today? Well, of course, what we give and how we do it is between us and God, as this passage says. It's to be the result of prayer and reflection. No one can or should tell you what you should do before God with, with what you have. But uh, there are a few practical thoughts or ideas I would leave you with on this subject as we ponder this before the Lord. First, in Malachi's day, this passage shows us that this is an ex- another expression of God's people not giving God their best. God's people were giving him their leftovers, if anything at all. And so, as a foundational part of our relationship with God, that can't be our posture towards Him in any sphere of life. Not just with our checkbooks, but with any sphere of life. We can't be, we can't have this idea that God gets our leftovers. That God gets whatever we want to give Him without regard for who He is and and how and, and what his relationship means to us. Second, our giving is connected with our sanctification, as Paul says. What does that mean? Well, giving is about the heart, right? It's not about the money, it's about the heart. And so generous giving is an opportunity to trust God to provide for our need. And so our faith grows. Generous giving is an opportunity for us to reflect upon the fact that everything that we have, we've been given And so our humility grows, right? Now, that's not a popular idea in our culture. We think we've earned all that we have. But who gave you the ability? Who gave you life? Who gave you breath? Who gave you the ability to think and to work and to earn anything? Generous giving is an opportunity to trust God. Generous giving is an opportunity to reflect on the fact that everything we have, we have been given. Generous giving is an opportunity for us to make eternal investments, showing our world that he who has the most toys did not win, but indeed that he who gives up his life for the sake of the kingdom is making the best decision in a counterintuitive, countercultural way. Finally, generous giving is an opportunity for us to see that God is praised. As a result of this offering in Corinthians... God is praised. Thanksgiving is being received, uh, is being given to God because of the generosity of his people. As we value eternal things, as we invest in them, these two passages tell us that God is shown to be greater before a watching world. And how we think about our budget affects our view of God. And this passage, of course, is for all of us. Kids, consider how you can give from what you have to give to others. Consider ways that if there are things, toys you're not playing with, things that you don't need anymore, how can you give that away? How can you pass that on to someone else who is in need? Teens, as you begin to work and earn money, establish habits to give consistently to things that you value and things that you believe in and connected to the things of God. These studies continue to show that people who are, who are generous and, and um, 
thoughtful about giving, their financial affairs are, are more in order. And that's, you know, they, they connect it to all kinds of things in these studies about giving levels and about, and about um, credit card debt and about uh, car loans and, you know, all kinds of things. And the principle that comes up again and again is this idea that God, that God blesses. And maybe not always physically, maybe not always materially, but people who are thoughtful about what they have and aren't just going with what the culture says. And aren't just spending because they can. But people who are thoughtful about what they have. And who invest it and give um, are blessed in, in a whole host of ways. And they can sort of quantify that sociologically. And of course, that's the principle that we see here. Our hearts are shaped by what we give. And with what kind of attitude we give. And God is glorified through our giving. And so my encouragement to you today is, may he indeed be glorified. May he be powerful in us. May he use us uh, for the advancement of his kingdom. May he give us wisdom as we steward all that he's given us. Amen. Pray with me. Father, indeed, our life and everything that we have is a gift from you. And you have been kind and merciful to your people in giving abundantly and in promising to take care of us even if we don't have abundance. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray that you would help us to be people who value things that are eternal. Lord, that you would help us to be people who, uh, who live generous lives, not just with what we have, with our time, with our, with our energy, Help us to be people who are generous in the way that you are generous. Mold us more and more into the image of your Son through this. We pray it all in his name. Amen.